0: Function Room 35, Riemann Reason, The Mysterious World of the Riemann Hypothesis. This episode is about an unsolved problem relating to prime numbers. Prime numbers are the building blocks of the number world. Every single number can be broken down into primes and no further. They're like atoms. Okay, let's assume that we don't know about electrons and protons and quarks and bosons. So prime numbers are 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 11... 13, and so on, all the way up to forever. For thousands of years, people have been trying to spot a pattern in them. Because every single number up to forever, plus one, is composed of primes, knowing about primes is a shortcut to knowing about every number. Bernard Riemann was a German mathematician who lived in the 19th century, and along with a lot of work on geometry, he also looked at prime numbers. He came up with the Riemann zeta function, which he developed using calculus and complex numbers. Don't ask me any questions now about complex numbers. I'll explain in the car. To explain better uh, the patterns of prime numbers along the number line. Think of it as a machine that spits out a number for every number you put in. And the Riemann hypothesis says that if you put in complex numbers, I'll explain later, the machine spits out zeros in a pattern that should continue forever and allows us to predict where primes might occur right up to forever, the moon, And beyond. If you're finding this hard to grasp, don't worry. Me too. And this episode is not just about proving hypotheses or conjectures. It's about the nature of things that are unsolved and why the search for solutions itself is as important as finding the solution. My guest is Dr. Alex Kontorovich, Professor of Mathematics at Rutgers University in New Jersey. He does a great job to fit some of what's in his brain into mine, but he's not a miracle worker. It was a struggle. He takes me on a tour of 18th and 19th century geniuses who couldn't stop thinking about prime numbers. There will be bits where you'd really want to see what's going on visually. uh, Things about zeros and zetas and that kind of thing. So for that, check out a YouTube video for Quanta magazine that Alex did where he explains visually what's going on without being interrupted by oiks like me. Ultimately, as all the best inspo posts say, this is about the journey. The Proving or disproving won't suddenly turn your breakfast into a rabbit or cause you to disappear from family photos, but searching for proofs means that mathematicians have found other interesting things along the way, kind of like when you lose a sock but find your missing Bluetooth headphones to use an entirely not real and definitely imaginary example. I'll be up front here; this was the hardest episode I recorded because I didn't understand a good bit of it at the time. So I had to read up a little bit afterwards and you'll hear me kind of butt in in the edit with some simple explanations of things that I didn't understand properly at the time. And I didn't interrupt at the time because I didn't know what question to ask. And I wanted to appear smarter than I was, you know, a tale as old as time. We start with a very simple question. Who is my guest and what does he do? Uh, My name is
1: Alex Kontorovic and I'm a professor of mathematics at Rutgers.
0: Why are you in the area of this mysterious, magical thing called the Riemann hypothesis? What got you into this area?
1: Um, I always liked number theory. And uh, I think I like number theory because I maybe I have a a short attention span or something. And I don't care. Like modern mathematics is all about building these massive machines. Well, the whole world is about building these massive machines. It's just most of the time we don't see them. They're massive machines that made the computers that you and I are using and the technology that allows us to have this conversation and so on. We just, um, we don't have to know about anything about those machines in order to be able to use them. Unlike this world, the mathematical world exists only in one's brain. And so anything that one wants to use in one's brain, one has to build on, on their own. So, you know, there are graduate courses, even in undergraduate courses, you would see, you know, day one, you know, what is commutative algebra? We assume a ring has these properties. And, and I was just always like, who the hell cares? Why? Why is that? You know, you make, you give me these definitions and I'm just supposed to play this game. I don't find this game interesting. Whereas number theory, the game was always immediately evident what the, what we were trying to do, these crazy patterns with whole numbers. If that doesn't strike you, then nothing (laughs) I say will.
0: And presumably to get into it, all you need to be equipped with is a basic appreciation of one, two, three, four, five, six. It, It all stems from that. Obviously it doesn't stay that simple for long. That's right. But in the, in the, in an endless Wikipedia chain of difficult topics, you knew that eventually, if you kept clicking back to the simpler topic, you'd get to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Exactly, exactly. You got your fingers; you can count. That's it.
1: You're a number theorist, at least as far as the questions go.
0: Yeah. So that, but that's deceptively simply titled area called number theory. Right. How <laughs> how could how could anyone get lost in that? And yet, once you follow it to its logical extension, you get into areas like this Riemann hypothesis. First of all, what's a hypothesis?
1: Right. So um, this problem, I think, is unique in being misnamed uh, on uh, the second half and not the first. You know, usually we get the the name of the person wrong. Here it's the the hypothesis. It's not really. It's just a conjecture. We We have all kinds of things in mathematics called conjectures. Somebody notices a pattern. They think the pattern continues. They explain how the pattern should continue, and they say, well, I'm going to conjecture that this pattern that I observed does indeed continue, and if maybe once someday somebody can prove that conjecture, and that would be great. That would be a theorem. For some historical reason, this one became known as a hypothesis instead of a conjecture. Hypothesis, I think more of, you know, like uh, all of science is about hypothesis testing. You want to have some experiment, or you want to have some intervention, some social intervention. Uh, what, you, what you do is, uh, let's say you just flip me a coin. And you have the hypothesis that the coin is is uh, fair, right? There's no, um, that the coin will flip heads, tails, 50, 50. Uh, you flip it a hundred times and it flipped 62 times heads, the rest tails. And you might think, well, is that just what a regular uh, fair coin does some of the time? Or, or do I suspect that this coin actually has some bias to it? So that's where you have a null hypothesis that there is no bias. And then you would compute the probability that an unbiased coin would have that much of a uh, fluctuation from 50-50 and then say, based on that, whether you, you know, should expect that the coin to continue being biased or if that was a fluke and actually that's part of you know, normal random behavior. So that's what I think of as a, a hypothesis is something you test. The Riemann hypothesis, well, I, I suppose you. we've tested the hypothesis as a hypothesis. No, it's just a conjecture. It's just a, a funny historical word that everywhere else in mathematics is called conjecture. And somehow it has this extra mystical uh, flavor around it for being a hypothesis.
0: So the conjecture fundamentally is, I wonder, does this thing I notice happen forever? That's right.
1: So people sometimes get hung up about uh, whether something is a conjecture or a question. I notice this pattern. I wonder if this pattern continues forever. As opposed to, I notice this pattern. I conjecture that the pattern should continue forever. I just don't know why. I don't have a proof to explain to you why the pattern continues forever. But I still, you know, suppose or surmise that it does. And I think this is a funny thing about. Um, maybe it's a generational thing. I think older mathematicians are much more hesitant to state a conjecture because I think there was like a. You know, you you state a conjecture. It's like, well, what if you're wrong? If you're wrong, then someone says, you know, this Kontorovich guy was an idiot. And and... then
0: historically a room full of copiously bearded gentlemen laughing at your folly at some symposium.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Whereas a more modern approach to it, certainly, uh, you know, when I've conjectured things and people have proven me wrong, I think, oh, wow, somebody read my paper. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just so good to be seen. Exactly, exactly. So I'm much more loose about uh, stating conjectures as opposed to
0: questions. Okay, so some uh semantics aside, uh yes. we are talking about something in number theory, this Riemann hypothesis or conjecture. Yes. And the reason it's storied, first of all, there's money in it if you solve it. Now we're tiptoeing about what around exactly what is it, we'll get to that. But yes. it's one of those things that people are offering money for. That's right. America. Although it's
1: probably the hardest way to make
0: a million dollars in the world. So this is the Clay Inst- Mathematical Institute. Is that right? They're offering a million dollars. That's right. Even though half a lifetime's work would probably earn you a million dollars in even at subdued academic wages. <laughs> That's not why anyone does this. Yeah, I know. I know. It's not for the money.
1: So this thing about uh, stating problems... It's actually, it's kind of a, a cool thing. It's, uh, you know, I don't know that other subjects have this, you know, like, these are the problems for the 20th century. So, so David Hilbert really started this in, in, the year, in the year 1900. There was a, uh, a meeting of the Inter- International Congress of Mathematicians. And uh, Hilbert gave some, like, good chunk, good number of problems. The, the number one on the list was the Riemann hypothesis. Now, the, the prime number theorem, which we'll presumably get to in just a minute, was just solved, like, three years before that. So uh, maybe people thought, well, now we can prove the prime number theorem, we're, you know, that's what the Riemann hypothesis is supposed to do for us, we're, we maybe are just on the cusp of solving this thing. And several of the other conjectures that he posed were solved one way or another, either uh, either he was completely wrong, or the problem was ill-posed, or yes, he, he was right, and here's the solution. So this thing of like, you know, having goals, not just randomly kind of uh, moseying through the land of mathematics proving theorems here and there, of course, that's what we do, but we also... It's nice to have these these goalposts mm. and say, like, here's something to center our, uh, to suggest, you know, math, it's not like there's any central body t- telling us what to think about. Yeah. So every now and then having having somebody say, like, these are the important things to think about is a useful exercise. And so the Clay Math Institute did, did that exactly, repeating Hilbert. They did it for the new millennium, and uh, there's only one problem that is common to both Hilbert's list in 1900 and the clay list in 2000. And that's, of course, ours.
0: It is is nice, isn't it, that that you define a planet's goals in a particular area? It must be quite a unifying thing for the mathematical community to have targets set. I do know that there's these eight or nine truths I might search for as well, too.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, um, how much research on those problems got done because they were marked as problems? I don't know. My guess is they were already very important problems at the time they were marked anyway, and people worked on them or didn't work on them based on what tools they had at hand and what ideas came to them and what conferences they went to and what their cultural milieu was. It's it's very hard to say that that act really did anything. On the other hand, You see people going through life never having sort of a vision for what they would like to achieve. And uh, it doesn't always turn out as well as it could have had they sort of said, like, what do I envision my, you know, five years from now? What would I like to to accomplish? Of course, this is exactly what we do for the National Science Foundation Every, every couple of years. We write a new grant proposal and we say, this is what I think will happen in the next five years. And these are the theorems I'd like to prove. And then you look back at the last grant proposal you wrote five years before that. And you realize you did none of the things that you said you would <laughs> yeah. and you did the things you never even you couldn't have dreamed of five years ago. So these exercises like, are useful uh, insofar as to drive your mode of thinking, even if it doesn't work out. You know, you, you just shouldn't be meandering aimlessly. You should have a goal. Even if you don't reach that goal, you might find something much more interesting than that goal. But you should still have a goal.
0: It's almost like they're diseases we need to find the, the cure for. In a, yes. In, in, with it, you know. Except, I guess, when defining those hypotheses, based on what we know so far, it's that if we extrapolate out our level of knowledge acquisition, we should have a fix for a particular cancer in 20 years' time. Does the same hold in maths? Like, if you say, based on what we know now, there's a linear relationship of time, brain power, computing power, that means such a thing is almost inevitably solvable, (laughs) or does do, do, do problems like the Riemann hypothesis, which we will describe very soon, do they evade predictability that they can be solved?
1: You know, I, I always thought Moore's law was this absolutely crazy, you know, that the speed at which, uh, tra- you know, how many flops or transistors, the number of transistors we can fit on a chip and so on. that, that the, the rate at which we, we will double our capacity and, and the fact that we've stuck to it for, you know, 40 years or something, um, you're predicting miracles, yeah, every single one of those speedups is an absolute miracle that no one could have pro- could, could have foreseen where it was going to come from. It was just uh, I don't know maybe it was a sales pitch to get in, in, Intel chips into everybody's uh, machines, but um, math has seen and has continued to seen through to see through my my lifetime and through my uh, uh, you know twenty some odd years uh, in the business uh, things. 10 years ago that we know today, 10 years ago, I would have thought we wouldn't, uh, I will die not knowing these things. And so uh, we're living through, we continue living through this amazing period uh, started, you know, some 200, 300 years ago of just exponential growth in our ability to do things. And yet some very simple problems, you know, like even before the Riemann hypothesis, we have the twin prime conjecture, we have Goldbach's conjecture, these things that school children can play with the 3x plus 1 problem. Where um, it's just a flat line, and so how do you extrapolate a flat line? You know, it was the number one problem in in Hilbert's time in 1900. It's the number one problem in the year 2000. Like, you want to extrapolate that progress out? <laughs> uh, that would be uh, pretty sad. But that may well be what what it, you know. I don't expect to see the Riemann hypothesis solved in my lifetime.
0: Okay, we've been doing lots of work in it, and people talk about it a lot. Uh, it's about prime numbers. Explain what the hypothesis says.
1: Yeah, so maybe we'll go back to Gauss's conjecture. So uh, people for a long time, a long, long time, knew that there are infinitely many primes. There's an argument uh, going back to Euclid from two thousand years ago. Gauss is the year is around eighteen hundred, and uh, just that there are infinitely many primes goes back to Euclid. Yeah. Euclid's yeah. Elements has a proof that there are infinitely many primes. So that's three hundred BC. So we know that there are infinitely many, and you start wondering, well, when will I get the next one? So two is prime, and three is prime, but four is not, but five is, but six is not, but seven, you know, like it's sort of. Like where are the composite numbers? Where are the prime? How are the prime numbers distributed inside the composite numbers? And the most basic thing you might ask is, okay, how many primes are there up to a thousand? Well, you can count them. And up to a million, you can count that. Up to a billion, you can count that. Up to a trillion, you know, people uh, have done these calculations. And the question is, what's the rate at which the number of primes up to x grows? And Gauss made very extensive t- tables. He was a uh, what, what used to be called a computer, which now means a machine that calculates, but it used to mean a human being who can calculate things very quickly. So he would make these massive, massive tables of primes, not always accurately, but, you know, close enough. And fortuitously, he also made massive tables of logarithms. And he stared at these two tables. Uh, I mean, he stared at lots of tables. He would have to notice there to are those two in particular. But for some ungodly reason, he noticed that it seemed to him that the number of primes up to some threshold, let's say x, x is a thousand, a million, a billion, the number of primes up to that threshold is that number divided by the logarithm
0: of that number. Okay. Okay, logarithms. Uh, some of us haven't looked at them since ancient tattered log tables with the names of our favorite now relegated football team written on them, or Duran Duran, or Spando Bally, or Scooter. But a logarithm is a mathematical function that represents the exponent are power to which a given number called the base must be raised to obtain another number so they help us solve equations where the unknown is the exponent or the power and they're used for making hard calculations simpler solving exponential equations analyzing growth and decay and look it's not going to you're not going to meet them every day but some people are big fans. Anyway, Gauss is staring at tables of primes and tables of logs. What happens next?
1: In other words, if you take the ratio of how many primes there are up to x, divide that by x over log x, that's that expected mean order, that that ratio will get closer and closer to 1 as x gets larger and
0: larger. Why are mathematicians all through the ages fascinated by primes and whether they go on forever or not? Is it mystical? Euclid couple of thousand years ago why why was he fascinated by prime numbers
1: so prime numbers are to arithmetic the study of all whole numbers as the fundamental particles in physics are to the study of matter so uh there are all kinds of situations where if you understand what's going on for primes then you understand what's going on in general you're not actually interested in primes in and of themselves so for just to give you an example another famous uh, problem in number theories is Fermat's last theorem so Fermat's last theorem is uh, asks whether there are solutions like the Pythagorean equation. The Pythagorean theorem is a squared plus b squared equals c squared. If you have a right triangle besides a, b, and hypotenuse c. And there are lots of integer solutions, 3, 4, 5. 3 squared is 9, 4 squared is 16, and 9 plus 16 is 25, which is a perfect square. So there are lots of solutions to the equation a squared plus b squared equals c squared. And Fermat famously wrote in this margin uh, that a cubed plus b cubed equals c cubed, has no solutions in the integers. And a to the fourth plus b to the fourth equals c to the fourth has no solution in the integers. And a to the n plus b to the n equals c to the n has no solution for any exponent n greater than 2. So 2 is the only one where there will be integer solutions, non-trivial integer solutions. And um, the first thing that people noticed is that it's enough to answer Fermat's riddle only when the exponents are prime. All you have to solve is a to the p plus b to the p equals c to the p has no solutions. And if that's true, then it will also be true for all exponents, because uh, all exponents are combinations of, of primes by the unique factorization. Every number is uniquely factored into, into primes. So it's not that we care about primes necessarily in and of themselves. Eventually, we do start caring about primes in and of themselves once we understand their power. But initially, we just, we just want to solve equations. And maybe we want to solve equations with integer entries or with rational entries this started in earnest uh, in work of diophantus about 300 AD so 600 years after euclid but already euclid understood that there's something very important about these these fundamental building blocks of
0: multiplication they can't be divided they're the atoms um, exactly we can we can do a lot with these building blocks and make and solve other problems exactly exactly a- and then the other question i had is in, when gauss is looking at his tables and I always have huge respect for these people who must have labored in bad light and with, you know, smudgy ink and thousands of numbers in front of them. And I often marvel at how big the sheets of paper I must have had, because they're not scrolling and they're not fi- file save as. They're opening books and all that. When yeah. he's looking at these, the fact that he noticed the similarity between the way the primes increased and the way the logarithms increased, when he's looking at that, does somebody, does he go, that's coincidence, that's magic, that's, oh, that makes sense that they should look a bit like each other? What happens when they, when they notice those things? Uh, then they state a conjecture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's basically what he, so he was computing.
1: And, and as you say, uh, I guess it's a good thing that iPhones didn't exist back then. Because when he was bored, you know, he's like done for, for the day with his work. He doesn't have any more mental capacity to to make serious progress. He'll sit there and just idly compute. That's like what he, you know, some people play a game of chess to un, to unwind. Some people have a glass of wine. Gauss just computes primes, huge, huge tables of primes. That's what he does in his leisure time. And really what he did is he looked at the fraction, the proportion of numbers up to, up, you know, in some region, in some region uh, from from a million to two million, from two million to three million. How many numbers in that region are prime? Or what proportion of numbers in that region are prime? So he's taking that x log x, x divided by log x, and dividing it by x. So the, he's he's observing that the proportion of primes, like the probability that a large number is prime, if you look in a window of size x, is like 1 over log x. Well, and he's table, he's also computing tables of things like log x and 1 over log x. And he's noticing the similarities between those values. It's just happenstance. Yeah. And then he said, I think these things look look right. I, I computed them out, and, and I noticed this pattern, and I think the pattern continues. And Riemann explains that Gauss's conjecture would be true if only you knew this thing about the Riemann zeta function. So really the first person to, I would say, give birth to the field of analytic number theory. So number theory is like, you know, we have these discrete numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and then we have the primes inside of them. This is like combinatorial Uh, there is no calculus, there's no limits in any of this. Why should there be? This is one of the things that um, makes me so excited to study number theory. There's no rules. Uh, The universe tells you what tools are the right tools to use on whatever problem it is that you happen to have in mind. So if you're looking to understand the distribution of prime numbers, it turns out that the tool that you should be using is this thing called a zeta function. Now, the first person to make that observation is Leonard Euler. So Euler in the in the 1730s uh, is trying to solve something called the Basel problem, uh, which there's a whole long history about. Maybe we don't we don't want to go into, but he's the first one to start playing around with these series. Yeah, series is a reciprocals of numbers to powers. So like uh, one over one squared plus one over two squared plus one over three squared. You know, one over like one plus a quarter plus a ninth plus a sixteenth plus one twenty fifth, and so on. The Basel problem was to determine what that number is. And it turns out, this is what Euler instantly got world famous for. He was having trouble getting a job before that. He he had to ship out to St. Petersburg just to, uh, he couldn't find a a job in Switzerland. And, um, you know, many academics can uh, sympathize with that. Job security is long history. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. So he, he eventually answered the, this Basel problem, which is that the, the sum of reciprocals of the squares adds up to pi squared over six. Like on what planet is yeah. that what it adds up to? But that turns out to be the case. And, and Euler, first of all, figured out that that's what that number was. You can compute a whole bunch of digits. Then what the hell is this, this number? Good luck finding a reason that that is a reasonable number to have an answer like that. We still don't know today what the sum of reciprocals of cubes adds up to. 1 plus 1 over 8, 8 is 2 cubed, plus 1 over t- uh, 27, which is 3 cubed, plus 1 over 64, which is 4 cubed. You add those numbers up, there's nothing. There's no, we, we still don't know if that number, We the conjecture there is that that number has no meaning. <laughs> the meaning of that number is the meaning of that number.
0: In other words, it's not related to any other number that we know in existence. We can't map it to somebody friendly like pi. The way pi keeps turning up, like... Some cliched character it looks like we're short of ideas. Let's just have Pi <laughs> randomly come in as being the solution to something that must that must have blown their mind. They must have thought, is is there some dark magic because it keeps turning up in these weird places?
1: For sure. There's a good reason that Euler's star, you know, immediately jumped at, at that moment. At that moment, that he identified this this series as adding up to Pi. I mean, that's, you know, Pi squared over six, but it had, the, the, the Pi is sitting there. It's not 37 over square root of two or whatever, right? It's, there's, there's pi. It's like, this, this is deep. This is deep stuff. Um, Right. So, so the next, not immediately, but shortly thereafter, uh, one of the next things Euler managed to prove using this theory of series where you have reciprocals of numbers raised to powers, he was able to prove using something called the Euler product formula. It's a little uh, technical. It turns, he converts a sum into an infinite product. And again, it's the structure, it's the multiplicative structure of the numbers being uh, broken down into primes that allows that, that product to exist. This fundamental theorem of arithmetic that all numbers are uniquely decomposed into primes and prime powers, allows Euler to prove that if you take the reciprocals now, not of the squares, but of the primes, the squares, the sum of reciprocals of the squares converges to pi squared over six. It's uh, What is it? Pi squared is like a little more than nine over six. It's like one and a half or something, you know, or around there, between one and two. So in particular, it's a finite sum. Of course, there are infinitely many squares, but they're, they're so large that their reciprocals manage to add up to something finite. Um, if you take the reciprocals of the primes, one over two plus one over three plus one over five plus one over seven plus one over 11 plus one over 13, that series Euler manages to prove diverges. So that series goes on to infinity. So it's a new and crazy proof that there are infinitely many primes. We already know there's infinitely many primes. Euclid proved that 2,000 years before. But now we have this crazy proof, and that proof uses ideas from calculus. Okay. The continuous is somehow interfering with the world of the combinatorial discrete prime numbers.
0: So all these dots on the number line have joined up to be... uh... To be a straight line or a curve or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. What the
1: hell does straight line, what the hell do straight
0: lines have to do with these,
1: these goalposts, these these picket fence numbers. So so that's the birth of analytic numbers, using techniques from calculus to study number theory. And again, uh, you know, now we have tools from dynamics and representation theory and general relativity is telling us something about prime numbers. Like this is why at least some number theorists love uh, number theory. As I said before, I I don't like just building big machines for no reason. Number theory is an excuse to build huge machines. We have lots and lots of big machines that people have to build in their brains. But for me, it was always very well motivated why I'm building this machine. I have this very concrete problem. I understand why that's a cool problem. I have to build this machine in order to solve that problem. You build the machine, you solve the problem, you go, that was so cool. That's, That's modern math. So Euler was the first one to introduce techniques from Analysis to study number theory. So it's already in the milieu, in, in the air, in the uh, people are people are aware that there are techniques for getting information about these discrete prime numbers from continuous considerations specifically involving these zeta functions, zeta type functions. So why isn't this called the, the, the function is called the Riemann zeta function? But Euler used it a hundred years before. Why Riemann? It's because Riemann created a completely new function, and it's a function that takes complex values.
0: Aha, complex numbers. Look, I'll do an episode about this in future, uh, but you may have found even the mention of complex or imaginary numbers gives you some sort of trauma on remembering them, and they gave you the willies in school, and it was all about the square root of minus one and iota, and it looked like people were just making it up as they went along. For now, just think of them as a number which, instead of lying on a number line, lies in a two-dimensional space, in a in an area, in a, in a plane. They're useful because they help solve problems in physics and maths uh, where geometry is complicated or it's to do with motion or heat or electricity or even relativity where lots of things change and are changing constantly and your normal everyday numbers are just not going to work. You need some heavy-duty steel toe-capped numbers. And those are complex numbers, and steel-toe-capped is a technical term, I promise. Anyway, I think it's time for an ad break. Uh, Join us after the break, where we go really into it, as if we weren't already into it. But it's too late to back out now. Okay, we're back. Alex is about to tell us what Riemann did next. It's because Riemann created a completely new function, and it's a function that takes complex
1: values. So this was a really radically new thing. In the 18, early 1800s, people started to grapple with calculus where the inputs are not real numbers. The inputs, you know, people study calculus, the, the inputs are real number and the outputs are real number. And then you can graph it on a, on a curve. Uh, when you're thinking about a function, function taking real values, uh, taking in real values, giving out real values. And Riemann is one of the founders, along with Kashi and several other people. At the time, people people had just discovered the complex numbers as a number system, uh, not long before that. And uh, so then they say, well, can we do calculus with this? And people had developed enough calculus on these complex numbers to understand some, some very deep facts about complex analysis. And Riemann realized that there's a, a way to construct a function which can take a complex argument... In, for all complex values, all but ones, doesn't matter, um, that agrees with this series function in a certain region. In a certain region, it's the same as the function that Euler was studying. Euler was only looking at the real valued uh, inputs, but now we can look at all the complex valued inputs and complex valued outputs. And what he crucially observed is that this function will have some zeros, right? One of the things you, you ask about a function is where does it cross the x-axis? Where is it zero? Of course, now it's not the x axis anymore because now we have, you can't even draw a complex valued function. It has two dimensions of inputs and two dimensions of outputs. So you need four dimensions. And then will be able to just draw that. But never mind, It's still a notion of zero, the function hitting the, the value zero in its output. Where, what input gives you the value zero? And he starts studying this. And um, there, so there's something called the critical strip, which is this strip in the complex plane
0: where these non trivial zeros uh, are known to exist and the zeros are important because in this context why
1: well that's the that's the magic of it he realized that the, the zeros where
0: these weird uh, where this function happens
1: to vanish has a direct impact on the location of prime numbers
0: okay again it another is- one of these worlds colliding situations where two are they on the face of it unrelated things that happen to match yeah. To really explain the reason why they match you need a course in
1: complex analysis, you know, sound was a mystery for a long time. People thought sound traveled instantaneously. Well, then they realized, no, it doesn't. Um, it has a a speed of propagation. Actually that speed depends on the pressure of the air molecules. It moves through air. It doesn't move through, uh, the vacuum. Unlike light, sound was really a mystery. And then Fourier analysis came along and, uh, whatever uh, vibrations my vocal cords are doing right now, the computer is converting into sine waves and cosine waves, sending just just the amplitudes and um, uh, and the wavelengths and the frequency. If you have the frequency and the amplitude of a whole bunch of waves, you can decompose the sound my voice is making, send those numbers from my computer to your computer, and then your speaker is reconstructing those sound waves and superpositioning them, and that makes uh, makes it possible to send my, my voice across. So the amplitude and the this decomposition into amplitudes and frequencies is the harmonic analysis of sound. Riemann discovered the harmonic analysis of the prime numbers. If you have a function on the prime numbers, you can decompose it into elementary waves, and all you need to know is the real parts and the imaginary parts of the zeros of the zeta function And they exactly play the role of wavelength and frequency. So that's what the zeros of the zeta function are. They're the harmonic analysis. They're the way to decompose. Any question you want to ask about primes can be decomposed into a question about the zeros of of zeta. I mean, loosely speaking. And if you can say something about the zeros of zeta, you get back an answer about the primes.
0: So the pattern of distribution of primes is... Uh, what might have seemed random or unpredictable before is Riemann is saying there is a pattern, and we haven't found the end of the pattern yet. Like I've we've and over time we've been plugging in billions and billions of primes. They still seem to fo- follow along this pattern, but we can't say for definite that's it for every prime into the into infinity.
1: That's right. That's right. So so Riemann made two
0: startling observations in this memoir
1: of 1859, Uh, one is that, so as I said, he, he knows that the non-trivial zeros are in a strip and he says, if you can show that there are no zeros just on the boundary of that strip, like for all we know, there's some zeros, you know, somewhere in the interior, but there are also some on the, on the end, on the boundary where, where the strip ends. He says, it's enough to show that there are no zeros on the boundary of this strip in order to prove this conjecture of Gauss that the number of primes, that the proportion of primes of size X is like one over log X. And by the way, natural log of X to base E. What the hell does E have to do with <laughs> yeah. primes? Yeah. So again, the, you know, not 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 only does what, what the hell does log have to do with it, but what, what does E yeah. have to do?
0: With it? Just like pi turning up in the plot. Exactly. So uh, so
1: Riemann pointed the way to solving Gauss's conjecture, even though he himself couldn't do it. He said, if there are no zeros on this this boundary which was proved in 1896. So we do have a proof of the prime number theorem. We've solved Gauss's original conjecture, you know, guided by Riemann's goalpost. Riemann said, like, this is what you should be working on. You should be showing where the zeros of the zeta function are. But Riemann even said more. There's a symmetry across the middle of this strip where the non-trivial zeros lie. And he says, actually, not only are there no zeros on the edge, there are no zeros anywhere except right in the dead center. And if that's true, then... If you think of the harmonics, like every harmonic is, uh, is an instrument in a symphony. Each, uh, what, these are the French horns, and these are the clarinets, and these are the, the bassoons and so on. They're all, they have different frequencies, but they all have exactly the same amplitude. They're contributing literally the same. Uh, there's this unity in the, in the symphony where every instrument is playing ex- at exactly the same volume. So that's this miraculous uh, statement. And if it's true, then uh, I think Don Zagier has a great line about this. He says something like, uh, you know, what Riemann showed, the primes satisfy two properties. The first property is that they are as random as possible. They're distributed just like a random drunken walk, you know, just complete, perfect, random Brownian motion. And the second thing is that the primes are exactly perfectly structured with complete regularity and uh, precision. And these two things are seemingly diametrically opposite, but uh, that's exactly what the Riemann hypothesis predicts. It's that the primes are perfectly distributed like a random walk because the zeros are perfectly lined up on the central line of the critical strip.
0: And when he comes up with this, do people congratulate him or say that's ridiculous? Or, you know, did it confirm a suspicion people had about the distribution of prime numbers? What was the reaction when he came up with this?
1: I think that people were extremely uh, shocked at this connection. Uh, I think that people, you know, uh, very quickly understood. He had already done all kinds of absolutely genius things. He was by by that time the Gauss chair at Göttingen, which was you know one of the world's uh, top uh, universities at the time. Yeah, I think people understood that that they had seen a stroke of genius that is seen once every half century or so, and uh, he was already you know revered, and this this made it all the more so. And and he it was a short memoir; it's only like eight pages, and uh, he says, "I I'm, I'm going to return to this uh, soon. I have other things I have to do." And then a few years later, he dies. And so he, this, he writes one paper in number theory. His, his career spans geometry. You know, he completely re- changed the way we think about geometry, the way we think about higher dimensions, the way we think about the, the structure of mathematics itself. He, he helped invent the complex analysis, you know, calculus with complex numbers. He, he had done so much. And in number theory, he wrote one paper. And his paper is still the paper that we can't get past 150 years later.
0: And you're explaining it to, trying to explain it to uh, on a on a podcast to an idiot right now. <laughs> and what kind of brute force has been put in to extending out the correctness of the hypothesis? So, presumably, the hypothesis says the primes are in this pattern as far as we can tell. We've no proof that it goes on forever. How close to forever have we got?
1: Yeah, so it's it's really not hard. And by hand, Riemann had computed the first couple of zeros. So even though these are complex valued functions, he, he had a method uh, that we only learned about uh, long after he died, that he had this method. People found his notebooks and went through them and realized, you know, how much more he had to say about this that he didn't have a chance to say. Um, he had computed the first bunch of zeros and saw that they were on the one-half line. The, the one-half line is this the, the center of the critical strip. So he, he gave a method for, for computing these things. You know, one of the first things people did when they had mechanical computers is start computing more zeros of the Riemann zeta function. And uh, as far as anyone's computed in trillions of these, tens of trillions of these things have been, have been computed very high up. You know, people people jump, uh, you know, you, if you can't if you can't go from the beginning all the way up to some huge number because it just takes too long. You might jump to another huge number and take a, take a long list of zeros after that huge number. And in every single, I, we, we would know if there was a zero uh, discovered off the line. And it's never happened. Every single computation that's ever been carried out, we would immediately know if someone found a zero off the line. Because you could immediately, like, someone says, here's where it is. And you open up your computer and you look and you're like, holy crap, there it is. There's a zero off the line. Riemann's hypothesis is done. And uh, game over for, for this beautiful symphony. That's never happened. A lot of things you hear said these days, one of the simplest questions to ask is, how do you know that you're wrong? What would happen that would tell you that you're wrong? And if there is nothing that would tell you that you're wrong, then you have a religion and not a science. Yeah. If there's nothing I can say, if there's no evidence I can present that will, uh, that where you'll go, you know what, you're right. I'm wrong. What I said was nonsense. That's what I love about math. You know, the good conjectures, the good things to work on are all falsifiable.
0: And the Riemann hypothesis is particularly falsifiable. Something's either on this line or not. Every single one of the zeros is on the line or there's a single one that's off. At least
1: at least one. Give me a single place to look where you say that the Riemann hypothesis is false. I'll look there. I'll compute. If I see that there's a zero off the line, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you get a million dollars for that or not.
0: And what have we built on top of assuming Riemann's hypothesis is true? Both in terms of literally building, you know, in the way we communicate, or indeed our understanding of the universe, have we have we put a lot of eggs in this basket?
1: Yes and no. If if there's a zero off the line, the only people who get upset are are me, (laughs) okay, Uh, you know, and people like me. So it's not something that's going to. This is a question, like, like most of uh, basic mathematics, these are questions that we ask because we can. Yeah, We're human beings. You know, it's, it's funny. It, it, it is definitely true that any society that has allowed this kind of useless knowledge to flourish reaps great rewards uh, as a result of it. But, but you can never tell where that reward will come from.
0: And has the searching for a proof of Riemann's hypothesis led to other things being discovered? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. All kinds of other crazy things have been discovered. So just to give you one example, um, it was uh, discovered eh, in, in the 70s. So what, that's 50 years ago now, I guess, um, that the distribution of the zeros, the, the zeros of the zeta function, if you look at how they're distributed and you look at uh, the distribution of states you know, where the electrons can be in a, lo- in a heavy nucleus, That there's a correlation between that; those two distributions are 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 identical.
0: (laughs) That's ridiculous. Like one thing's numbers, and the other thing is the universe. How could (laughs) that's mad, isn't it? It's totally mad, you know. And that's the world we live in. So, so people look at that, and then they see, and just like just like Gauss, a few centuries before, they see things that appear to match, and then they start asking questions about, "I wonder why that might be," which leads into other interesting areas. Then, exactly. How has the the knowledge that the Riemann hypothesis exists, does it drive how you do your work? Like is it is is a hypothesis or the person who hypothesizes it first, do they inspire you when you're doing your work? Do you, even if you're working in a different area, approach things the way they did? Is there something that's transferable across the centuries?
1: You're you're always standing on the shoulders of giants and seeing how um, you know, especially when you read their original works, and you, in hindsight, you know what they're what they're doing, but then you read what they're what they what they're saying they're doing, and you're like, no, that's not what you're doing. <laughs> you don't know anything about Gauss's work. Gauss, let me explain to you what Gauss's work is about. <laughs> you, know? uh, you you, I was never interested in history as a kid. Like if someone tried to tell me something about, oh, this problem comes, I, I don't care. Just give me a problem. I want to solve something. I want to prove something. It's when you start proving your own theorems that you realize you prove theorems because of the culture that you're in and the and the questions that are being asked and the tea time conversation you had with a visiting colleague. And um, then you realize, wait a second, Gauss had tea time conversations with visiting colleagues and Riemann had tea time conversations with visiting colleagues and and. And then you start seeing that in their work. You start seeing what, what did the world look like before he made this realization and what happened as, as he made that realization. And so, um, you, you've seen enough of these paradigm shifts where the, where the you've, you're, it's like an Overton window of of what is possible in mathematics. Uh, that window keeps, keeps shifting and changing and growing. Um, and uh it makes you wonder what what kinds of things are right under your nose that are waiting to be discovered you know it's, it's hugely inspirational to see the kinds of things that mere mortals these these guys you know they're giants of course but there are giants walking the earth today and I'm fortunate enough to have some of them down the hall from me
0: so much like the function itself you're uh, you might have taught yourself thought of yourself as this discrete data point prime person when realizing that you're part of a of a pattern a, some sort of zeta curve of mathematicians i
1: love that that's a great way <laughs> of putting it
0: what are you working on now it's all as nice to talk to somebody who has a bona fide blackboard over their left shoulder and it's not a it's not a prop. So you have actual mats going on going on over the over your shoulder. Is that anything to do with prime numbers, the Riemann hypothesis, or anything like that? I see I see polygons up there.
1: Yeah, good question. Um, well, it, it has to do with formalization, and formalization is something I've been working on a bit more lately which is that we're used to computers helping us with calculating things, finding patterns and, and giving us lots of graphs that we can stare at and and find patterns ourselves. Um, Computers are even getting good at finding the patterns for us, but they're not yet good at proving things for us. There's an extra level that mathematicians take, which is not just to see the patterns and pat ourselves on the back, like physicists and say, Hey, we discovered that not to be not physicists too much. Um, but uh, we need absolute rigorous proof. The theorem that was true 2,300 years ago in Euclid's time and 5,000 years before that in, in India and in China and in Africa and so on, uh, those theorems that were true then are still true today. So it's an absolute truth of the universe. It'll be true for aliens uh, when they finally reveal themselves to us. So in that sense, uh, it, it's something that's, that's, that's forever. And, uh, and that's what mathematicians really love to do, is, is prove a theorem rigorously. But what we do when we prove theorems rigorously is something very, very precise. We have these axiomatic systems and logical operations that we're allowed to do on them. And in the more recent times, it's become really possible to formalize high-level mathematics. That's a whole other... We can do another hour on why formalization uh, has, has been exploding. But especially in the age of AI... Uh, now you can have systems looking for patterns in the theorem statements and proofs themselves and so the more mathematics that is machine formalized the more possibilities you have to train these things and and have them help you find new new theorems that you wouldn't have found on your own or, or help them help you find them more quickly than you would have
0: struggled to do on your own so so you're working out up there on the on the blackboard a a proof to feed into a computer for it to help you prove it, is it? That's, uh, that's right. That's right. So that's
1: a little exercise with my uh with my students and so on on how would you formalize the notion of uh a convex polygon. You know, a convex polygon, you just it, yeah, it's easy to explain. You just draw a picture and this is convex and if it has, you know, some hole inside then it's then it's not convex. Well you can't that's not an explanation that a computer will accept. Yeah. And so it takes, you know, designing these systems is a, in itself, kind of a difficult engineering problem.
0: Um, Speaking of your students, do you have a philosophy when it comes to explaining difficult maths to lay people like me? There's magic in all of this, but it is, it's wrapped in lots of things one needs to know beforehand before one can go to the next step. Uh, for you, is everything worth explaining to lay people when it comes to the big questions of maths? Like, is there is there intrinsic value in in discussing esoteric things because who knows what might spark? Or is, is there sometimes a case of what's in my head won't fit in your head?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And for the last century, I would say maybe uh, two centuries or so, Uh, mathematicians have just said, like, forget it, the lay audience will not understand what we're going to do. And you can read them write this. Uh, They just say, um, it's, it's impossible. So I'm not even gonna waste my time trying, I should just prove my theorems and, you know, close my office door and prove my theorems and never try to talk to someone who's who can't, uh, who doesn't have the same background, um, technical knowledge that I do. Um, I think that was a profound mistake, And it's a mistake that we're still uh, reeling from today. And uh, I'm going to do what little part I I can, play what little role I can uh, to um, allow people to know, first of all, that there exists such a thing as research mathematics. It wasn't all discovered 200, if not 2,000 years ago, uh, that there are living, breathing human beings who spend their entire work day. Like my job is to sit, I get paid money to sit for eight hours a day and stare at a blank piece of paper with a pen in my hand, hoping some, (laughs) some idea will come to me, right? The the, the
0: hallmark of a civilization. You've been excused from your (laughs) grain harvesting obligations. (laughs) We can support you through this, through, through the winter with this. Exactly. Exactly.
1: The amount of things that have to go right in society for there to be people like me (laughs) is incredible, Um, but they do exist. And, uh, and they're not all, you know, incapable of, you know, what's the, uh, I'm telling a joke to a professional comedian, uh, <laughs> a, a, um, an, an, introverted mathematician looks at his shoes when he's talking to you. An extroverted mathematician looks at your shoes. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to use that one in your next No, uh, no I, I, you know I never use another, another person's <laughs> jokes anyway. <laughs> I, I think the pendulum is swung and, uh, and people there was a time when professional mathematicians would say, "Oh, you're you're one of those popularizers, you're like wasting your time on this stuff. What you know, what are you trying to accomplish here? Why don't you sit down and prove a theorem?" And that uh, I think these days people, you know, serious mathematicians uh, understand the need for this kind of, of work. Of course, I don't uh, take every request, but I, I do see it as a as a, a role I can play and it's something I enjoy. You know, I uh, it's it's not easy to think about these things uh, in a way that can bring um, the essence of it down to something that you can at least by analogy uh, describe I would say that's completely different from what I do with my students for my students you know f- we're just having a casual conversation I'm not trying to get you to be able to compute these things yeah. with my students they have to compute they have to know the you know they have to know what the theory is they have to know the definitions they have to know what the theorems are they have to know how to prove those theorems and they have to be able to compute the answers as a result of those theorems that's more mapping out where their, um, where their knowledge base is. And if their knowledge base is in a certain region, uh, if I start telling them things that are inside their knowledge base, maybe it'll become even a little clearer, but it's not growing their, their understanding. If I start telling them things that are way outside their knowledge base, they also will not grow. So it's, it's right here on the boundary where I, when I'm talking to a student, I'm always trying to understand where that boundary is. And uh, wherever that is, that's exactly where I want to push a little bit and give them some nugget of information that they didn't have before. That they then they go home and they do a whole bunch of computation on their own, and that's when they actually start to uh, add to their to their knowledge. And people do that at different rates, and and there are different. You know, I have undergraduate students, I have graduate students, I have postdocs who are already themselves professional mathematicians, but just starting out in their career, and they're they're trying to develop an independent uh, trajectory, and and so on. So okay. it's all part of the job.
0: Yeah. Um, On the other side, as as the punter, the layman, do we have to recalibrate our our way in which we understand things and that we should be okay with like only getting 10 percent and then building on that 10 percent? Like, as often we want we want it boiled down for us, this, you know, for example, the Riemann hypothesis or or other other things like that that we're like, I need to get it. Uh, But in some ways, does is it iterative? Even you know, even in the in the lay, the layperson space, that we should be okay with um, absolute blank face second time you hear it, knowing something. I mean, I always compare it to the first time we went looking for a buggy before our first baby was born, and just the panic of knowing nothing, <laughs> but maybe the second time we went to the buggy shop, knowing a little bit more.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I never make, my my philosophy is always like it should be a voluntary exchange. So I never insist that my audience must now go and study Riemann's memoir on the, you know, like anything like that. People should get out of it what they want. Of course, I, uh, I do hope that some fraction of people who listen to things that I say are somehow inspired by it to go and study there, to go back to their, you know, uh, pre-calc homework, if that's what they're working on. And Maybe they'll, they'll just say, OK, I, I have to slug through this, which is a little annoying and a little like I don't really know why I'm doing it. But, but I have at least my sights set on the possibility of there being a future in which this stuff is real and exciting and, yeah. and interesting. So um, I don't make uh, assumptions about what I want the, the audience that I talk to to do. It's, it's their choice what, what they do with their time. And if some people are inspired to go read some, some books, great. If not, that's okay too, you know? And, and as you said, familiarity is a, is a big component of it. The first time someone shows you, you know, a limit and you're like, what the hell, you know, the hell are you talking about? And the 10th time you're like, yeah, okay. I know what a limit is. Which one are you trying to get me to compute now? Let's see if I can understand that. So um, yeah, it's just, you know, seeing things again and again, and at some point, uh Even a stand-up comedian might reach for a math textbook <laughs> and, and think, you know, I, I let's see where where's that where's that region where someone can tell me something new that I can understand. Yeah. It's not something I already know. It's not something that's using words and techniques I have no familiarity with. But where's that, you know, proximal whatever? There's a technical yeah, term. For
0: this that achieve, achievable goal in the mental gym. Uh, exactly. Finally, is there such a thing as a Alex Kontorovich hypothesis? Is there something? <laughs> You have hypothesized and already proved, or are still still working on, and feel free to describe to state it flatly in all its <laughs> in all its uh, jargonic all. glory. Yeah, uh,
1: you know there there's some theorems I'm very happy with. Uh, I guess they were conjectures when I first started working on them, whether they were conjectures of other people or or, or my own. Um, yeah, there's there, there's a bunch of things that I. You know, it's like choosing between your theorems is like uh, which of your <laughs> children is your favorite. It's like, yeah, yeah. very
0: good. Even which if are... you have
1: a favorite, you shouldn't publicly say yeah. which whichever
0: <laughs> one of them has made you cry the least or the most. I suppose uh, that's right in terms of, uh, and it's all in the in this area of number theory or whatever. That's that's where that's where well, you've numbers... moved, you've you've nudged the boundaries of knowledge forward. Well, uh, again, number theory as a um, as a motivator.
1: And then that number theory turns into non-Euclidean geometry and turns into dynamical systems and ergodic theory. and turns. So so where I actually nudge is those places, but it's in the service of some number theory. It's often, it's not always, it's not always clear how it's in the service of something, but it is often in the service of some long, long, faraway goal that has something to
0: do with number theory. Okay. All right. Uh, and you'll be at this forever, I presume? You're, you're... They'll have to take me uh, out of this office kicking and screaming and... Yeah. Yeah.
1: Very good. Good. All is As good they talk. said of Euler, he, he ceased to compute and ceased.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, uh, make sure that you all have a plentiful supply of that blank sheet of paper uh, for continuing to compute. Uh, Alex Kontorovich, thank you so much for coming into the function room. Uh, best good of pleasure. luck in whatever you hypothesize or conjecture next. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Dr Alex Kontorovich there. Lots to think about from the Professor of Maths at Rutgers University in New Jersey. I hope he didn't mind having to decant some of what was in his head into mine, but I'm glad it's in there now. One thing I forgot to explain was E. Yeah, E. E is good. Uh, It's an innocent looking number. 2.71828 and so on forever. But when it turns up, it means business, literally. It turns up in compound interest. Also, it turns up in population growth, probability, theory and statistics, entropy, radioactive decay. It's just everywhere. There's actually one behind you now. That's it from the Function Room. This time you can find me, Colum O'Regan, on Twitter and also now on Blue Sky. whatever you add on for Blue Sky. You can also find the podcast Function Room Pod on Twitter. But for now, bye bye.